My name is uh, Tim Morrissey. I am the CEO and co-founder of Artemis Robotics. Artemis Robotics is a robotic hardware company based out of Boulder, Colorado, where we make lifelike motion for the next generation of robotics and automation. So we're commercializing a soft robotic actuator in a variety of industries. Maybe I'm curious to ask you how you came across soft robotics field. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, soft robotics is such an interesting field, and uh, it, it was not something I purposely walked towards. I actually have a undergraduate degree in what's called ceramic engineering, which is extremely specialized material science. Uh, so I, I was working with very hard, very rigid materials, like glass, ballistic armor, things like that. Uh, and I actually started studying more of that during my PhD. Uh, but kind of my my life took a different turn. I was into my program and it just wasn't working out for a few reasons. Uh, and so I, I met a new person, and that was a, a gentleman named Christoph Keplinger, who was at the University of Colorado Boulder. He's now over uh, in Germany at a Max Planck Institute. Uh, and, and it was more that I connected with Christoph on a personal level, and he was interested in soft robotics. So I was his first PhD student. He was just out of a postdoc at Harvard, moving to Boulder, needed someone with some experience that could get the lab up and running in a quick, quick manner. Uh, I had a bit of experience having worked at Oak Ridge National Labs previously, having already been a grad student for a little while. Um, we just got along great. And so he kind of taught me uh, about soft robotics, and I learned to love it through that. So I'm much more of a person-first type of mentality rather than maybe tech-first or, or, or product-first. Uh, I really like to connect with people. Uh, and so it was through that connection that I, that I learned to love soft robotics. And now I have an, an immense appreciation for it. Um, I'll jump right into it because I'm sure you're going to give me a question that I can talk about it uh, later. But, but I think it's so important. Let me, let me frame it right now why I'm so interested in soft robotics. And it's that the field of robotics, is an, it's an amazing field. And, and robotics has been promising this very uh, beautiful future vision, right, where these laborious jobs are done by some automated system and everyone can have these fulfilling careers doing out other things besides, you know, picking fruit or packing boxes. Uh, but the truth is what's going on in robotics and, and traditional robotics is that we're automating what many might think would be a good job. Uh, we're automating that very very quickly, and we're not automating the more difficult jobs. And I'll give you the, a very specific example of that. Go to the warehouse uh, where the, someone's uh, in a distribution center or something like that. They'll start off unloading trucks. Like, that's the low-level job. And this person who might not be college-educated, edu they're trying to work their way up into a better job in that in that warehouse. And that's probably a, a forklift driver, to be honest with, with you. I've been there. I've seen the 15-year badge. Uh, they're safe. They're good workers. It's a good job for a middle American guy uh, or, or woman. And, and the fact is, though, the job that's going to be automated next in the warehouse is the forklift driving job. That's like right around the corner. But the job that's not going to be automated is the, the hard job, the uh, unloading the truck job, the picking the fruit job. And so soft robotics is trying to solve for that. We are trying to automate a task that only humans can do today. And they can only do it because they have natural muscles, real muscles. It's a very diverse actuator. And so we're trying to replicate that because it's very important that we automate the most difficult jobs rather than the jobs that are easy to automate. That's what we're doing at Artemis. 
that's really excellent point. Yeah. So maybe I'm curious to stop again because you mentioned really um, many interesting points. The first one about getting interested in the field. I think that's maybe the fruit of this uh, years was uh, Christoph, I think, uh, and you as well uh, to start up the, uh, to make this company out of what, what you have been doing. I think yep. that's really, really a great story that you have been connecting in a, in a human level. So if you can tell us how he has a mentor, because it's really important that this kind of, yeah, they have chemistry in working and, and you feel connected to the, your mentor and then you have find your way. Uh, as I can see, that's something you are passionate and that's success, something successful for you now. Maybe you find your purpose. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, one thing that was true at the Kepler Research Group, and I maintain here over at Artemis, uh, was something I think I had I had touched on earlier in my life, and then and then working with Christoph, it really came out, and, and that was how important it is to take what you what you're learning in the lab in a technical endeavor, whatever that is, how important yeah. it is to not only put immense effort into solving that technical question that you're interested in. But there's equal importance, if not more, in communicating that to the next level, to the next person. And so what we mean by that is is being so uh, passionate and strong about how you put together whatever you're putting together to communicate, whether that be a written piece of material, a video, a photo, whatever it might be. Uh, the work you did in the lab, the technical work you do, it's only valuable if you pass that on to someone else. Stand on the shoulders of giants, right? Maybe you can be that giant to someone else in the future, but that only happens if you put some effort. And I, I would argue just as much effort as you put into producing the information as you do in transmitting the information. Uh, we're really passionate about that over at Artemis here. That's why I do podcasts like this, to, to take an opportunity to talk to as many people as I can and educate them on what we're doing because value is only found once you have that transaction, once you pass it to someone else, whatever that is. It's, it's information, it's discussion, uh, but it's so critically important. And unfortunately, I, I bring that up because I think uh, I think in a lot of academia, there, there's some pretty serious room to improve there. Yeah, I can't agree more with you. I think you said really also excellent point about that. But maybe the question here, because I think that's something we ask every um, every episode, that why the transition between what we have in the lab to industry is so, so challenging? What are the missing pieces uh, in that case? So if I can ask you first, how you define soft robotics? And if you can tell us about what ha have been already the most well-known development about Hazel Actuator and how it was visible for you and Christopher and the rest of the team, this kind of transition. Were there many missing pieces that when you in the lab and how, how you foresee the potential uh, to be in a real industry application? What could be the question you had in this time? Yeah. Two fantastic questions. I'm going to break those down into two. First, let me define soft robotics a little bit better because it's bigger than just us over at Artemis. And then I'll, and then I'll dive into kind of some of the learnings we've had uh, trying to commercialize our particular soft robotic technology. And I'll be frank with you, we're, we're still pushing through a lot of those, right? We're very early over here what that commercialization looks like. So first, soft robotics, we're not the first uh, to, to know that this kind of material science approach to robotics was a good idea. Uh, people have been working on bio-inspired robots and soft robots. And, and just for the listener, soft here. Uh, it, it truly means soft, like it's compliant or flexible, soft as in the material property as opposed to hard or rigid. Uh, and so you, you can obtain that by using, you know, elastomers or compliance structures. Or, or there's a variety of different things you can do. 
Uh, and soft robotics, uh, I would say, you know, if you go back into the 50s, uh, there's this old technology called a McKibben's actuator. I mean, that was around for a long time. Uh, in the, in, right at the turn of the century in 2000, uh, there was another real good spurt of soft robotic technology came out of SRI, Stanford Research Institute, uh, called the Dielectric Elastomer Actuator, DEA. There was even a, a, a startup that spun out from that. It, it was around for about five years. It even had product uh, in the commercial market for a brief amount of time, um, but it didn't end up working out, unfortunately. Uh, that company was called Artificial Muscle Inc. Um, and again, that technology was a dielectric elastomer actuator. And, and I say that because our technology here, Artemis, the Hazel uh, actuator, it takes a lot of inspiration from that DEA. And then more, more recently, you know, soft robotics has really been picked up uh, by some of the big, uh, some of the big academic entities, specifically Harvard uh, and George Whiteside and his group over there. Uh, and they've even commercialized some of it as well with a company called, appropriately named, Soft Robotics Inc., uh, which use air-based and uh, elastomeric systems. Um, and so there's been some great approaches. I would say when people think of soft robotics, they often think of those categories of actuators. There are other things, of course. There's uh, ionic, uh, ionic gels. Um, and, and again, just you can just print things that have a compliant kind of structure because of it. Uh, but then with all that, we'll trickle into what is a hazel actuator and how it's different. A hazel actuator tried to take those two prevalent technologies, mitigate some of their issues towards commercialization while, while distilling down their benefits. And what I really mean by that is we, t we take from the dielectric elastomer actuator community, we take the, the use of high voltage electronics, the use of electrostatics, which enables high controllability, good portability, things like that. And then we, we borrow from the from the pneumatic uh, uh, pneumatic elastomeric systems. We borrow fluidic concept, concepts. And so when you use fluidics to drive motion, you can access hydraulic principles. You can get very complex structures. And there's a lot of benefits there. So so the hazel actuator distills those two things. Uh, we define a hazel as really the combination of using high voltage electrostatics with thin plastic films and some sort of liquid dielectric. We we believe those are the core principles that make up our hazel actuator. And that enables it to, to provide analog control to access hydraulic uh, mechanisms so we can get pretty good force uh, and do a lot of other interesting things, too, that we can get into in time. Uh, and so, anyways, that, that's what I would say. That's what the, to define and give a landscape of the soft robotics community. And um, then I'll, I'll go jump right into your next question there, uh, if I may, which is, uh, which, is, which is what are some of the learnings we've had here at Artemis as we've gotten, gotten to that? And I'll start with just a joke. The, the, the folks and I here at Artemis, we often say, whoever ever said that quote, that hardware was easy, must have had it wrong. Uh, and that's, a, that's obviously a joke because the, the quote is hardware is hard. Uh, and when you're making things, and more importantly, when you're making things that stretch and move intentionally, uh, things get very complex very quickly. Uh, and so like one thing that we got right going working on here at Artemis as soon as we were thinking about commercializing was lifetime and reliability. Um, you'll hear even over in software, it's easy to make anything work once. And it's not easy, but but it's anyone can make anything work once. It's making something work every time with a variety of different influences affecting it. You see it with software all the time. It works on one machine, but then you send it off to a million other phones and they all have slightly different apps and slightly different updates. And all of a sudden you got all these bugs. And so, so with that, it's kind of finding that repeatability. It's providing people with the same motion they expect over and over again. It's making that device, that piece of hardware reliable over and over again. So those are some of the technical challenges. But then I would say that the real the biggest challenge is, is application. Uh, soft mm -hmm. Robotics has had a beautiful academic story for a long time. 
from that story being bio-inspired, solving these difficult motion challenges that only natural muscle is able to do. Uh, but when it comes to put the, the rubber meets the road, what, what does those applications look like? And how do you build a company that can provide value both near-term and survive for the first few years, actually get a product out there that's generating some amount of revenue, well, then also scaling towards you know the vision that we, of course, always have, which is these uh, Westworld robots, these humanoid robots walking around, these exosuits that are just integrated into your clothes, things like that. Those futuristic applications are beautiful and elegant, and we're, we're striving towards that. But there's some near-term steps that you have to do to, to get there. And so application and what problem do you really solve? I would say at Artemis, we discovered um, that's just as important, if not more important, than the tactical challenges we have, which are, which are there as well. That's really wonderful. Yeah. So maybe I'm curious to ask you in that case, uh, um, how was that star for you? Because, for example, uh, we know, in, for example, in dielectric customers, sometimes we have this question also in the podcast that, yeah, we know that we need high voltage, but if we look for any conductive polymer, yeah, it's still it has a low current. Uh, you can apply low voltages, for example, but the force and mechanical performance is really, is really friendly, is not really what you aspire to have. And that's kind of trade-off in the design. So do you think for you now, because that's something you make sure it's working and, and you have a certain application and that what, what you mentioned, but how was the star for, for you? Because now you have a competitor, for example, uh, for example, the soft robotics based on a pneumatic application. And now you're proposing something, yeah, still new. How was there, uh, how though, um, me, the market was receptive about your solution? Was this hard for you at the beginning, or how? If you can tell us how, how's the start was you for that? Absolutely, I and mean, it's hard. For, it was hard for us at the beginning. It's hard for us now. We're still very much in that in that phase, that learning phase. All startups are in that learning phase, trying to find product market fit, trying to figure out for real who finds value and what they're offering. And I want to I want to take a quick statement. We don't see soft robotics as a competitor by any means. Uh, it's us against the world. We're the ones trying to change the way motion happens, right? Our, our competitors, incumbent technology, servo motors, and things like that. Uh, there is there is so much to be automated out there. There's no need to compete directly with small companies like this. It's all about just expanding. The ocean is big enough that we don't need to fight for the same piece of it. Um, yeah. And so with that, though, the approach we took at, at, at Artemis is, is approach we've seen other academic companies uh, take as well, uh, which is a development kit approach. And that is to not go heads down in the lab and just make a bunch of assumptions and try to build something, which is what we're drawn to do as an engineer. I want to go to the lab and build things. It's really fun and it's exciting and, it, and it's comforting and it's easy. Um, but the truth is you need to go talk to people. You need to find out what they're doing, what their real challenges are, do a lot of customer discovery. And then take it one step further, and we, we've shipped here at Artemis, we've shipped to 13 different customers already in our first about year, year and a half. And I think a lot of companies out there haven't because they're like, oh, I haven't done this yet, or oh, I haven't done that yet. And we've had a couple challenges. Uh, luckily, no catastrophes. Everything we're sending is meeting expectations in general. But what we're shipping, these are these are prototype products, right? These are engineering units. Um, they're not fully tested, and we're really transparent about that with our customers. We're like, hey, this is this is an early product. Take it, start to get your hands dirty with it, break it, let us know how you broke it. Um, and that's going to help educate our design cycles, help educate some iterations. And it's so critical to do that. And towards that, you have to be vulnerable. You put yourself out there. Hey, here is a, here's, a, here's something I'm going to put in a box and ship, but I know it's not perfect. And I know that you have to look past some flaws. And so again, it comes to that communication I talked to prior. I got to communicate that to my customers so they understand what to expect. If we have equal expectations, everything's going to be good. 
if they think they're getting something that integrates with a Ethernet connection and Cat5 or something like that, and I'm nowhere close to that yet, we're going to have a problem. And so it's all about communicating those expectations, uh, which again goes back to what I said before. There's the thing that the guys are building here at the lab, and then we are sharing that. We're communicating. We're distilling it. And we're pushing it into someone else's hands and heads and visions. And from there, we get really important feedback. Um, and so that's what we did. We went with a we went with an early approach, and it certainly was scary, and it's still scary. Every time we put something in a box, we're like, oh, boy, is this one going to work? Is this is everything right? Like, of course, we have quality assurance and everything like that. Um, but it's just it's um, it's an interesting feeling, and it, but it's a very uh, empowering feeling as well. We're very proud of everything we ship. Um, and so anyways, with that, we just – we entered an iteration cycle with our customer as quickly as possible. I think that's really great, yeah. And also challenging indeed. But maybe the question here about what could be maybe the direction you, after you have this feedback from the customer, what yeah. could be how you figure out this direction could be promising and maybe I have to consider or is it easy to figure out based on the feedback how you can maybe consider that and something could be meaningful for your product? Oh, oh yeah, for sure. Big, uh, one of the one of the first ones is what type of uh, problems do we need to solve first? So a customer comes back and tells us, oh, I don't mind the high voltage. Uh, that's fine, actually, for my application. We can encapsulate it. It's not going to be a big deal. But, you know, it's just not strong enough yet. And so you guys got to figure out how to get this thing stronger if you want us to put it in a product someday. So those are some feedbacks we get. And so, okay, we have, we have a lot of research that we can strengthen these things up. Um, another one is that one of our benefits of our technology is it is quite high stroke. Um, especially in, we have a couple of different form factors, but in one particular geometry, we can get over a hundred percent, uh, strains as in it doubles in, in height. And we thought everyone was just going to love that, but they came back to us and say, that's great, but actually that's way more than we need. And so we're willing to sacrifice that for this application or for that application to maybe get some more strength or something like that. So these, this input directly, uh, educates some of our design cycles and our, and our engineering cycles. And then with that, better yet is when we have customers come to us. Um, with multiple different asks, or excuse me, multiple different customers coming to us with a, with a single similar ask. Uh, it gets really, as a leader of a, of a high-tech company, it makes it a whole lot easier to do decision-making when there's a million technical problems to be solved, when you have half your customers all asking for the same type of thing within six months. Okay, that, that makes it really easy for me, actually. Um, so, so those are some of the other ways that it helps. And usually I would say just to be more specific too, usually it comes down to form factors for us. That's a big one. And so we ship kind of like some generic form factors right now that were kind of chosen just based off of some early use cases. Uh, but then customers might come and say, Hey, actually this would be better if it was skinnier or if it interfaced a little different. Right. Um, and so that's a great, that's a great way for us to, to, to work, work with them. Mm-hmm. And let me ask you about the challenges here, because I think if you have the development kit, do you consider something like simulation for what you're doing or tools for that? It's you think we come to commercialization, because we know sometimes simulation and modeling is not really accurate 100%. So what techniques do you consider maybe fast and reliable for your customer and your development as well as a company? That's a fantastic point. Actually, something we just finished up the year working on. Because uh, we would have customers saying, okay, you have these two type of things. And this is when we differentiate between the technology platform as a whole, which is our hazel actuation technology, and a single actuator, like something we actually put in a box and ship. Because we definitely have a lot of customers or potential customers that come to us and say, here's what I think I need. And we're talking much more about technology. And how does that translate to a piece of hardware that you can send me? And because we at Artemis are using this unique material science approach, 
we actually have quite a bit of parameter space to play with. We have a couple of different materials whose properties we can tweak in a whole lot of directions. We have geometries we can tweak uh, and some processes that we can tweak. And with all that, it's pretty, these, these models like you just suggested, all of a sudden you're extrapolating a whole lot of different things and, and you're kind of concerned it might not come out the way you think it is. And so actually inside of Artemis, that's one of our core strengths is obviously we understand the Hazel technology the best. Um, and we've developed this new framework to work through some of that. A customer comes to us and says, these parameters are important. These parameters aren't. Okay, that's going to help our design space. And then we start to work, okay, of those parameters, which one have we have we looked at physically together, like for real, like experimentally demonstrated? Which ones are estimates based off of models? And then how do we balance those two things? Um, so you you highlighted a fantastic point. And, and something that's that's one of our problems is because because we're making hardware, because we're making these custom shapes and things like that sometimes, that can be quite time intensive. That's a pretty uh, intense development cycle. And so in terms of where we put our efforts, uh, it's something that I balance a lot as, as the leader of this company uh, and something ex exactly as you highlighted, something we actually ended 2020 focusing on to say when we go into 2021, how can we make that process more robust, more reliable just for us so we can engage with people uh, in, a, in an easier way? Mm -hmm, that's great, yeah. So maybe I'm curious about maybe the technological roadblocks that you face already, maybe, because we know it's still really new. Um, it's in, in, in industry, we don't have so much uh, applications for soft robotics, as you mentioned. But if you can tell us what could be challenging still yet, maybe for the marketing, that's something we need, maybe in academia, because I think that's the missing pieces here. What we do in academy sometimes is, is not, as you said earlier, that is not really feasible to commercialization yet. So if you can tell us how we can, as a community, focus the effort to uh, reinforce this effort towards uh, closing the gap of these challenges, technological challenges for fabrication or, yeah. So some of the challenges we have uh, with the hazel actuation technology and soft robotics as a whole Um for R specifically, it would be the use of high voltage. So although high voltage can be inherently safe even around people, uh, especially if your current's very low and if you encapsulate properly, uh, there is just a general perception around it. People just don't want it. Uh, and so the use of that, the kind of way you talk about that, the way you do technically change that, those are all really important things. Uh, and so with that, there's some great material science work to be done. We're working on it. There's some academic folks working on it. Uh, in terms of how do you get the operating voltage of a hazel actuator down. Uh, and usually it involves uh, tweaking the dielectric properties of the materials you're using. Uh, so, so, so that's one thing. That's definitely a technical challenge in between, in between us now and, and where we're going. And then an, another technical challenge, you brought up fabrication. That, that certainly can be a challenge. We're, we're pretty good at it here at Artemis. We can, we can, make, we can make things. We've made, we, there's, we have hundreds of actuators out in the world. So, so we, mm -hmm. we've, we've made a lot, maybe even thousands by now, honestly. Hundreds for sure. Um, and so we can make these, and they're not the most time-intensive things ever. Uh, and there's a lot of commercial technology that's very amenable to making more of these very fast, like if we need to make thousands an hour. There are technologies out there that exist, but those technologies haven't been applied to make high-tech soft actuators before. Like, they, they've been used with thin plastic films, but not with thin plastic films that are then going to go get high voltage applied to them. And so there's just a lot of... Uh, again, kind of extrapolation where you go out on an edge and you're like, I think this should work. Like everything looks like it should work, but you don't know until you know. And unfortunately, it's a massive capital equipment 
purchase between there between knowing and not knowing. Uh, and so, like I always talk to my customers and my investors about how Artemis scales. The technologies exist to work with the raw materials that we work with, but then what's the output? Is the reliability going to be there? Um, that is still a bit unknown, and it's just because nobody's using electrostatics to make motion the way we are. And so that's just a new frontier. And I, I know everybody in soft robotics, because we're all kind of making things move in a very unique way, they all find the same thing, where they're usually using a material that's pretty common, but they're using it in a way that's pretty unique, and there can be some kind of just translation issues there sometimes. So I would say that's another one of the tactical challenges. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a good point. So maybe I'm curious to ask you about the risk in the mm -hmm. ideas or development. So how you figure out this risky? Uh, for example, in, at the same in academia, when you have a risky idea, you're not sure it won't work or not. So for you, how you figure out this could be very risky and or maybe it's challenging when you have risky ideas and also we, we want to make it profitable as well. So how, how you mitigate that? Uh, how you can make this balance to have something that's beneficial to your customers as well, a new generation you're developing, maybe. So how you figure out that the risk, uh, to avoid the risk in, in the ideas or the development you're doing? Absolutely, absolutely. That's a fantastic question. And and it's something that I still grapple with daily. I mean, balancing risk is someone's challenge in every part of their life. Uh, and so in terms of technical risk, in terms of soft robotics, in terms of what Artemis Robotics is doing, I think a good approach to tackling risk is to try to de-risk the hardest things soonest. And so let's go back to what we were just talking about with like the capital equipment and the fabrication. And I think it should translate, but I'm not positive yet. But to be quite frank with you, I'm really confident it can translate. There's definitely going to be some unknown things that happen along the way, but en enough engineering resources thrown behind it. You can look at a couple of pieces of information and just with some experience say, those probably are all going to line up. Yeah, there's going to be some unknowns, but it's probably going to work. But when you're in an area where it's all unknowns, where you can't extrapolate off anything, that's where your real risk lies. So does this actually work when you apply high voltage? Does someone actually care if I made this product? If you're in the field of soft robotics, most people in industry don't even understand what soft robotics are or have any experience with it. And so you have no idea how they're going to react because it's not like, oh, someone looked at that other soft robotic technology and they reacted this way and now I can extrapolate off of that. Usually in terms of application, you're starting from zero. And so that's where your biggest risk lies, your unknown unknowns. I don't even know what that's going to begin to happen. And so I think, in my opinion, start to at least tackle those as quickly as possible. Turn your unknown unknowns into known unknowns. Okay, I don't quite understand how that's going to happen, but here's one piece of information that at least educates it. I can go make a little bit of more information by having a conversation, by talking to someone, by showing someone something and going from there. And then the same is true with your technical. Try to, if you can extrapolate off of some other information somewhere, that's a really good part. But it's the it's the holes, and especially the critical holes, that you're not even sure one way or another how something's going to react. Well, then that's actually your riskiest part until you've proven it's not. And so you should probably go look at that right now. Um, examples for us for that. I'm trying to think of a specific technical example for us that's been incredibly risky and we've had to work with. I would say... Yeah, um, safety around people. That's pretty risky um, because we do have high voltage. Um, you know, we are, um, the way that we've encapsulated things 
uh, has been something we've had to figure out. We just didn't know much about it when we started. We've gotten a lot smarter about it since then. We have some pretty nice encapsulation techniques that we think are working on making things quite safe. Uh, and so that was something that, again, we looked at and we said, I have no idea what's going to happen around this because no other devices are using high voltage uh, around people the way we are. So let's go take a look at that. And we did, and we know a little bit more. And that's really good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a really excellent point. Maybe a quick question here. Do you envision maybe using low voltage? We know this is kind of a challenging question, but do you envision that I can maybe merge something from either conductive polymer as low power? And I don't know. You have kind of some thoughts that maybe how you can merge that ionic conductive volumer with dielectric elastomer so that you can have low power and high mechanical performance. I know it's impossible, but do you have any kinds of like that that you can achieve that vision? Yes, absolutely. The vision of merging those two specific technologies, we don't, we do not have because the ionic conductive polymers, those are running off of kind of a, a different principles. Uh, we're really just running off of electrostatics here. We're not doing any ion migration or anything like that. So, so I don't, I don't envision kind of combining those. But in terms of getting our technology, the hazel actuation technology, much lower, we do have plenty of approaches towards that. Uh, in the lab, we've demonstrated operation as low as like 600 volts, which is an order of magnitude less than what our typical operating voltage is. Um, you know, that's not robust yet. That's not uh, commercially amenable yet, but it's there. And again, that goes back to, okay, we know a little bit more about that. We think we could probably figure that out later because we saw this material behave that way. And that's a good sign. Um, and so, yes, we absolutely do see ways to get the voltage lower. We also see ways where the voltage doesn't even need to get lower because of the application or because of the way you encapsulate. Um, so there's a few different ways to, to approach that. It's definitely one of our top challenges, but I wouldn't say it's the top challenge. Um, mm -hmm. So great question. Uh, and that's, that's how I think we'd approach it. Yeah, yeah, great. And for the tweaking the material, do you think you have to consider material that could be easy to manufacturing or have better functionality? Oh, oh very good question. Uh, that, that definitely both. Uh, in terms of getting the right property you need, that's going to be the first step. Like you have to get the property you think you need. Um, and so, so that's the first step. But then it needs to be amenable to some sort of scale. Uh, it's possible, you know, maybe some of these low voltage actuators, those aren't getting made in the hundreds of thousands of years. So they're getting made in the tens of years because of whatever application they have. In that case, it doesn't matter. That's a bit more high tech. Um, the good news is that, so one thing that's really unique about our technology over other competing soft robotic technologies is most other soft robotic technologies use elastomers. And mm -hmm. our hazel actuation technology just uses thin plastic films that are flexible, not stretchable. And so the differentiating there is that a piece of rubber, a rubber band for your, for your notebook, that is stretchable, right? As you squeeze it, it gets thinner in the cross section and elongates compared to a piece of uh, paper, for instance, that is flexible. You can just move it back and forth, but you can't stretch it, right? You can't get it to elongate and thin. And we only need that flexibility. We do not need that stretchability. And when that is the case, fabrication processes become a whole lot easier really quickly. Um, you see it all over the place, right? Think of uh, a Lay's chips potato bag or something like that. There is miles and miles and miles and miles of thin plastic films that are produced every probably second, to be quite frank. Um, and so be, it's, it's that because of the materials that we have chosen to work with, which are based off of the way our technology works, the fabrication becomes kind of, a, it, 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 I won't say it becomes easier, but your toolkit becomes bigger. And usually if you have the right tools, you can solve any problem. Um, and so that's a, a really good approach for us. Yeah, yeah. 
So maybe I'm curious about the application again and the customer. You mentioned already customer from academia or outside academia, the, the customers. We have uh, we actually we have both. We have um so we have some academic uh, customers which are more just you know commer uh, research entities that want to experiment with soft actuators. Uh, usually, I think most of them are like roboticists that want to get into the field of soft robotics. There's not a whole lot of soft actuators on the market. We're selling one, and so they want to they want to experiment with it. So about half our customers are like that. And then we have uh, industrial automation customers. Uh, so we work with uh, a German company called Festo, which is the second largest uh, industrial automation uh, manufacturer in the world. Uh, we're working on an application that's going to go into a warehouse. Uh, and so they see that our electric analog intelligent actuators have a very nice value for a lot of kind of complements to their pneumatic actuators. And so that's one of our applications. Uh, and then we also have defense applications as well. U.S. Navy is our most frequent customer to date. We've sold to them five times. We're working with the Army now as well. Uh, we're looking to expand up to NASA as well. And so there are some kind of, I will call them unique defense robotic applications um, that our technology, because of the way it works, because of the way the things it's made out of, uh, brings some pretty interesting value. And, and to distill it down, though, what I've discovered, because we have a technology with a pretty wide uh, suite of feature sets. It can be silent, it can be soft, it can be fast, it can be uh, analog, it can give you high stroke, uh, a few different things, too. Uh, one thing I've discovered, though, is usually our customers are interested in Analog motion, so continuous motion where it's not just binary, where it's not bing-bang operation, but you can get, you know, five states in between or really a continuous set of states in between. Uh, they're usually interested in that. They're usually interested in electrical control, so not pneumatic control, something easier to use. And then they often have, this is the differentiator, they often have a unique environment, which for some reason or another, and every customer is a little different, the incumbent technologies of servo motors and, and pneumatic actuators don't work. And so it's these unique environments that we usually find our footing um, where we have that portability that works well or some other factor about our technology makes it appropriate for that uh, un unique environment. So if it's, if it's any environment whatsoever where it's just like in a lab and you don't really need this controlled environment or there's not a lot of restrictive factors, uh, usually a different technology folks will reach for. But once they're in an interesting place like the ocean or like space... Uh, we can do some things that other technology can, and then it gets really exciting. Mm -hmm. That's great. Maybe a question here. I think um, that's something we discussed at the podcast about how we can design uh, those actuators that could be fatigue resistant. So when you ask your customers for, I don't know, how how you make sure this actuator is, can work, how the lifetime or uh, life cycle of this actuator, this is something, uh, do you think it's challenging to design them that we can be fatigue resistant and have uh, a high life cycle, for example? It, it can be a challenge, absolutely. Uh, fatigue, uh, creep, things like that, those kind of long-term mechanical responses, those are very significant, again, in elastomeric systems. And so the fact that we don't use those and we're only using flexible systems, that's a really good start. Um, but as we do, as we kind of push the envelope of our technology, go to thinner films, uh, go to more unique films. Uh, then all of a sudden, uh, things like uh, bending stiffnesses come into play, which are then directly going to correlate to those fatigues and things like that. Uh, so absolutely, those are some challenges. Uh, to be honest with you, we don't have an application right now that's demanding incredible lifetime. And so because of that, it's not a top of mind challenge. But again, it's something we're kind of working on. So we actually have a really nice 
uh, test set up here, here at the shop. Uh, and this was a project that we're working with the National Science Foundation on. Uh, so an NSF SBIR. Uh, and it, it, we have this, uh, we have this really nice test rig where we can run uh, nine actuators at a time around the clock just to like essentially torture test them to failure. Uh, so we are, we, you know, a lot of ways you approach that is you just take kind of the brute force approach, which is you just, you just study a whole lot more actuators. You break a whole lot of actuators until you finally figure out what's going on. Uh, think of like uh, crash testing a car type of situation. Uh, and so, yeah, fatigue, fatigue is absolutely something that's uh, significant, uh, not a top of mind concern, both because of the materials we use and also because the applications were applied in, but certainly not something that uh, is solved by any means. Mm -hmm. Great. So our colleagues and I have a question. The first one, what is your aspiration as a CEO for the company? What's something you aspire for 2021 for the company and or maybe the long term as well? So through 2021, one of our uh, critical milestones is that we're trying to have our actuator implemented in a customer's environment. So instead of us mocking up what it might look like here, we're really kind of in a prototype early pilot project with one of our customers. And so we're already working on some of those conversations and that'll be really exciting because again, it comes down to the environment. I think it's a whole lot easier to get something to work in your environment versus someone else's environment. And so that's really going to prove some of our value if we can demo what that looks like in, in a customer's. Uh, and then in terms of what my aspirations are for, for the company, uh, one, one company that I really look up to that I, I hope to see Artemis grow to is actually a, a global massive company, Mitsubishi. Mitsubishi was started in the early 1900s as a, as a simple motor company. Uh, there was a miner who needed uh, this new tool for some sort of mining task that they had, so they made a motor, and, th and that was making motion, right? And then they slowly made a few other motors and different motion techniques, and they worked their way up, and they worked their way up, and now they're this massive company that they are today with, you know, they're in every vertical out there. They make everything. Uh, and I, I really think Artemis has the potential to do that because when you provide motion, the world runs in a physical place. Like you and I live in a physical space. Uh, and so when you provide automated motion, you, you really can touch a lot of people's lives. Uh, and, I, and I think we have the potential to do that. We have a technology that's diverse enough to do that. And so I look forward to expanding very, very far in terms of the way our technology is implemented into all these different verticals because uh, I see the potential there. Uh, industrial, defense, those are just our starting points. But I see us getting into healthcare. I see us getting into automotive. I see us getting into uh, into toys, um, all those type of things, all, all in due time, uh, because everything needs motion. Everything moves. And that's where we can help. Great. Yeah. So maybe I'm curious to ask you ego. Sometimes it's important for you when you have this kind of discussion, negotiation, and also delivering what, what you're doing at the company. Do you think ego sometimes is important? Yeah. Oh, I keep my ego in check all the time. And my lovely co-founders are sure of that as well. Ego can be dangerous for sure. And I love the question. Uh, I think it's important to have uh, tasks in your life where you're both growing and checking your ego. Uh, I mm -hmm. think it's important to find opportunities where you are confident in something, where you know that you can push that forward because uh, you have that skill set because you've done it before. You can get into some amount of flow state and really feel good about doing whatever you're doing. And then equally, it's very important to have challenging things where you're questioning everything, where you're like, oh, my goodness, am I in the wrong spot? Am I doing all this wrong? And it's when you have one or the other that I think things can become problematic. But if you have a diverse kind of activity base that you're involved in, um, I think that's very valuable. Uh, and, and I see that every day. I, I, I like to say I was a good researcher when I was in academia. I worked at a national lab before. 
Um, and I, I was pretty confident in solving technical challenges. I really love electromechanical systems, getting computers to talk to things that move and studying how all that happens. Very exciting for me. Uh, and then as I finished up my grad school, I stepped into this business world where all of a sudden I had, I've literally had kids that didn't go to college with successful businesses telling me how I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and that's a good ego check. And, you know, that's not the nicest way to do it, but it, it's been fun and I've grown and I've expanded my my activities. So ego is very hard in academia. We could talk about ego in a whole nother manner. Uh, luckily, in, in the startup world, it gets checked pretty quickly because, um, you know, customers are paying or they aren't. Yeah, they don't they don't really go much away. So you got a pretty quick measurement on a lot of things. Yeah. I'm curious also ask you if you're here in this part of what you have gained being uh, as now a CEO and with your team as well as experience. And when you are in academia and now you have this kind of you know, face real world uh, application on be what what the demand for me so how this experience what you gain what quality you have gained was it changing for you or how this experience uh, affecting you uh i think in a word gratitude or appreciation mm -hmm. um i've seen and i've learned by stepping into a more diverse role uh, where i'm looking at technical things but also personal things and also financial things and also legal things and, and everything else in between when I'm looking at all of these different considerations of a single decision or a single task or a single object, you really quickly start to appreciate these different activities. And with that, you appreciate these different people, people that are strong over here and maybe a little weaker over there. You know, go back to your engineer. You can probably think about what I was good at in school and what I valued and things like that. But this has forced me to value the creativity or maybe value just someone that can just execute on a small task well over time. I've been very appreciative of lower level people sometimes because they just do, you know, what they need to do and they, and they do it with dignity and pride and they do it well. And, and I really value things like that now. Yeah. Um, and so because I'm in this more diverse role, both as a, as a kind of a technical leader, but also by taking a cutting edge technology and trying to bring it to the real world, you're, you're bridging a couple different pretty significant worlds there. You start to yeah. appreciate different opinions, different skill sets, different people, and I've really, I've really enjoyed that. And something that's been incredible for me is, uh, is kind of this firsthand learning of the different value people bring, and that how everyone brings some value. Yeah, that's a great. And lastly, what was the best advice uh, was given to you, and was maybe a life changing? Maybe during what, what you have been doing, you have received an advice. I've, I've received a lot of advice and I'm very fortunate. I'm in Boulder, Colorado, which is a vibrant startup ecosystem, both for mm -hmm. hard tech and, and other. Uh, and I think one of the pieces of advice that a, a CEO of a robotics company said to me early, about two mm -hmm. years, probably two years ago now, when I was just figuring out what was going on, he said, take every meeting you can get and talk to every single person willing to listen until you truly don't have time to do it anymore. And he, and he was, be very serious about when you don't have time. He's like, your job is to figure out where you live in the world. And, and by you, he means the company and the product. And so he said, you gotta be talking to every single person and getting their opinion on it um, and, and really meeting with everyone you can. You're not too good for a single meeting. Uh, and, to, and there's a, there's obviously a breaking point to that, right? You, you there are there are truly not enough time in the day some days, uh, but take those meetings especially early and just really be um, as open as transparent as possible uh, to learn from as many other people around you as you can. 
That's wonderful advice. Yeah. And uh, do you have any final words you'd like to say for Sophomotics community or maybe student? For sure. For the students and the Sophomotics community, I would say pick up the torch of communicating your work, your research, whatever it is you do, and carry that torch proudly uh, and strongly. Uh, you are likely doing cutting-edge research, which is likely very complex, very impressive, and it is your job and your responsibility to distill it down and try to tell the world about it. Let the world know the good things you're doing and how it can help them. Because the more you can do that, the quicker you can bring value to the world. And that's what we're all trying to do here. So, so carry that torch of transmitting your ideas proudly and strongly and commit to keeping it alive.